Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. By now, you may have noticed that I'm interested in biographical fiction as an extension of the traditional biographical genre. If you haven't, I really urge you to listen to my conversation with Colm Tobin about his remarkable biographical novel on Thomas Mann, The Magician. This year ended with a corker in this genre, This Devastating Fever by Australian writer Sophie Cunningham, who spent 15 years trying to work out how to write a novel about Leonard Wolfe, the husband of Virginia Wolfe, who also happened to be a publisher, man of letters, and a civil servant whose seven years in Ceylon turned him into an anti-imperialist. With several works to her name, including autobiographical novels and essays, Sophie Cunningham has always moved between fiction and non-fiction, but this book is the most ambitious thing she's attempted. In This Devastating Fever, we meet a biographer called Alice, who is gay, has a cat, lives in Melbourne, and worries about climate change, much like Sophie Cunningham does. She also has a waspish agent, a wonderfully astringent character. We meet Leonard Wolfe in a series of scenes leading up to his wife's suicide and earlier when he's working in Ceylon. We get glimpses of his complex inner life, ideas and suppressed desires. The title of the book is a direct quote from Leonard Wolfe, which he used to describe feelings of lust, but it also has a modern resonance as a way of describing the pandemic during which the book was completed. I talked to Sophie Cunningham via Zoom on a not very good line. Would you like to start by introducing us to Alice, the biographer at the centre of your novel? Who is she? She is a writer who has been working away on a, on a sort of a literary project for what ends up being 15, 16 years. Um, that's a, the biography, a sort of a, a fictional biography of Leonard Wolfe but it keeps morphing into other things. And when she's finishing the novel, or not finishing the novel, depending on how you, you read the novel, uh, she COVID hits and she gets caught up in lockdown. And she lives in Melbourne? She lives in Melbourne, yes, um, which means she goes crazy like everyone in Melbourne did, possibly, <laughs> everyone, possibly everyone in Australia did. But, you know, I yes. also lived in Melbourne and, and um, Mount Macedon. Um, I lived in, in the country as well. And, and Alice, while Alice is not me, she that she does have that trajectory of living, spending some time in the city and then moving to the country because of Well, that. I'm interested in the fact that you say so early on in our conversation that Alice is not you because she does bear... That's because I know you're going to leap in and tell me she is. That's why I just thought I'd cut to the chase. Well, <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to come back at you and say, in what ways is Alice not you? Tell me... In what okay, ways what you I differ? What I want to say is, what way, why is it relevant? That's my actual question. So mm-hmm. what I did was create a, my question for you, because I created a character that I wanted to convey a whole lot of things. I used bits of my life, bits of fiction. I tried to work out what was going to work best for the narrative and kind of make it funny and sad and all the other things I was trying to do and I grabbed bits and pieces of a life some of which was mine and some of which was totally transformed so I don't sit there thinking I'm going to just try and hide cover my tracks and make it not me or this is me I really you enter a space where it's just actually irrelevant whether it's you in the same way that um, I one of the things and that happens in the novel is that 
Alice gets so obsessed with her novel that she starts to sort of have conversations with sort of figments of her imagination or actual ghosts of Leonard and Virginia Woolf. That did not happen to me. You make a whole lot of narrative decisions, which means that for the author, by the time you finish the book, it does not feel like you. So I, I do accept what you say, that she, the voice is a bit like my voice and that she has characteristics that I have. And some of the things happen, I did the research that the, the author character does a lot of that research is research I did, by which I mean I went down to Sussex and spent time there. I went to Bloomington, Indiana and worked in, in archives there. I spent a bit of time in London. So it is not that we don't have shared experiences. It's just that when you're writing it, it's irrelevant to you. So I, I know that, I mean, a couple of um, reviews have picked up on the fact that I present Alice in this way and say that it's defensive. And it's not defensive, it's so much as... I'm just trying to make the point. It's kind of irrelevant. I don't mind if people think it is me. Alice, people like Alice would be perfectly complimentary if people thought it was me. But it's just not how you write. That's why I kind of... Uh. No, I, I see what you're saying. And I suppose that Alice is a sort of... She's an extension, I would say, possibly, of elements of Sophie Cunningham. And I see why you say that's irrelevant. Let's just dwell for a moment on her status as a biographer because I'm aware of the fact uh, that you you haven't read Possession by A.S. Byatt, where the biographer is a very prominent character. Was that a deliberate avoidance or have you read other fiction in which biographers are central or peripheral characters? I have read, read other books where they've, those characters have been central. Where, 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 sorry, where the biographer has been central. Um, but those books were by Jeff Dyer, not by A.S. Byatt. Once I realised, people said to me that uh, Possession, when I described what I was doing, of course people said, oh, that sounds like Possession, you should read Possession, at which point I thought I really should not read Possession at this point because you don't want to sort of accidentally nick other people's ideas. I just wanted to kind of run with the idea as I was working with it. And Jeff Dyer's book did help reading Out of Sheer Rage, which was his book about a failed attempt to write a biography of D.H. Lawrence, did help me break through in the writing of this book. So I'm really glad that you mentioned Jeff Dyer's Out of Sheer Rage because I adore that book. And I think that a lot of the elements of that book resonate with me in terms of reading your book in that there's a kind of humour, a drollery and a sense of frustration sometimes that you share. But his book is massively, I think, self-indulgent in that ultimately he fails at writing his biography of D.H. Lawrence because he finds himself more interesting than he finds D.H. Lawrence. And I would argue that Jeff Dyer generally finds himself more interesting than any of the topics that he tackles. <laughs> yes, well, I... I, I have heard people say that, yes. I don't think comment. that that is the case with you. But I'm interested that you read that book quite late in the 15 years that it took you to write this book. So when you read a book like that quite late in the process, is that not also a kind of a hindrance in that does it not blow everything apart and make you go, oh, my God, he's done X? Or is it helpful even relatively late in the piece? Well, it is a hindrance in that you have to do, but I mean, clearly I had to blow the book up because what I, the book I was writing was not good enough in my estimation, I, I suppose. So what I 
I can't remember, is it Bandanong when I read it? So I think that was 2017. I can't quite remember when I, when, um, I mean, I have Bandanong in it. Alice goes to Bandanong, but not at the same time. She goes to Bandanong. And we should explain that Bandanong is an artist residency on the Shoalhaven in New South Wales, which was a bequest yes. of the Arthur Boyd yes. um, family, well, Arthur himself, um, so that artists of all kinds, interdisciplinary, could come and spend extended periods there. And you did, and Alice does. Yes. So I went, I, when I was at Bandanong, I could tell that the project wasn't coming together in the way I wanted it to and I'm happy to talk about why that was but at that point Bridget Delaney who is a journalist who was working on a book was there and she said you should read out she raved and I read it and I thought this actually really helps mm. and the reason why because I had been putting off having a contemporary character simply because I did not want <laughs> to get back to our first question to have everyone say oh you've written about yourself again because I have written about myself in other books so I had to think about that having a contemporary character as a creative solution rather than getting caught up in people's interest about whether it was or wasn't me. And I, at that point, thought, okay, you just need to, you start to need to start thinking about having a contemporary character. And then I wrote a version where the character was absolutely not me as a contemporary character. She was a Sri Lankan English woman, mm -hmm. woman who'd grown up in England but with Sri Lankan heritage. And that character didn't kind of come together. I, I always thought she was great but other people did not so at a certain point I thought okay I'm just going to stay in my lane and write about a middle-class Australian woman whose voice I'm familiar with and which also as I realized allowed me to talk in it well I hope an interesting way about colonialism yeah. and the novel and the fact that I have a history of publishing and editing as did Leonard Wolfe so it actually became an advantage to use myself but it took me a long way to get to accept that that I was going to draw on that, and but why I said it wasn't working was because it felt like a, a stilted, fictionalized version of a biography. I had wrote some scenes that were very vivid; they were probably nice writing, but that does not a novel make, in my view. You have to have other things going on. Can you break down the rest of that fifteen-year period in terms of? What else was going on for you? Did you stall, for example, during that time and leave the book alone for long periods? Because it's not as if you didn't write other things. You wrote several other books during that 15-year period. So did you yes. leave Leonard and put him to one side and I even did. abandon him? Well, I sort of I, I started to work on the book. I did a master's where I did a lot of very formal research and I went to Sussex. I did and that trip to Sussex is to some extent described in the book and I had a very clear sense of exactly what I wanted to do. It was a very formal sense of what I wanted to do but it kept going off it, it, and it felt stilted, long story short. I kept reading books and reading about Bloomsbury and Leonard didn't quite leave me. And I also, <laughs> I think as, as I was doing that reading and thinking, started to realise that while I was trying to keep the book constrained from the early 1900s until the end of World War One, that I probably needed to broad more. I, I was more interested. I wanted to actually write more forcibly about their lives. I also realised that it was unrealistic to think I could write about Leonard without Virginia being 
a more major character in the novel. I'd originally planned it for her not to be such a major character. The more I realised that I was growing towards the age that Virginia got to, that I I had entered and got together with, with the woman who is now my wife around the time the novel started. And then, of course, after you've been together for 20 years, what is a long-term relationship? How do people change each other's lives? These things became of more interest to me than I'd really understood, really hadn't been thinking about them when I started. Were you someone as a reader who had bought into the sort of whole Bloomsbury industry and was an avid reader of all the lives of all the Bloomsbury figures you could get your hands on? Not at all. I had read most of Virginia Woolf's non-fiction, but I became, I was, when I say I was a feminist at university, I specifically meant I studied feminist theory at university. And I became very, this is in the 80s, became very interested in what, what is now called intersectionality. So I actually was quite dismissive of Virginia Woolf, which I would now call an ignorant position. But I was like, she's a terrible snob, it's all right for her, whatever. Those kind of um, things that are said about her, I shared some of those views. So I didn't actually engage particularly with the Bloomsbury set. I that said early on, but when I went to Sri Lanka at, in 2004, it ended up being, it was 2005. I was meant to be going there in January 2005, but tsunami had hit and so it was a bit later in 2005. And to prepare for that trip, which was not meant to be about this book, I read Leonard Wolf's diaries, I read his novel, The Village in the Jungle, and on the shell de Kretz's recommendation. She um, gave me these suggestions for reading and, and I just started to read more and more. I was like, I have dismissed all the Bloomsbury people without knowing a lot about them. <laughs> this man sounds incredibly interesting. He has a much more complex position than I had understood him to have. And then I started reading, um, you know, I went and read Ian Forster. I read other kind of what you would now call post-colonial literature and my my initial interest was in a way issues of colonialism and and post-colonialism but what ended up happening over the years of the writing was I realized that that even it was kind of naive that I thought I could write about post-colonialism I mean I am a colonizer this kind of Alice touches on this in the book my family you know quite recently as in the mid-1800s were involved in colonizing Australia Um, I you know, I mean, without getting into so it's, this is not a heavy-handed aspect of the book. It's more just an, a realization that it's kind of naive to think that someone like me could kind of do this riveting analysis of post-colonial society. I think that that, that has to be left to other people. How does Alice choose Leonard Wolfe as her subject and why? I think she chooses him for similar reasons to me, to to why I chose him. But there is less actually emphasis on this in the novel than there was in my real, real life. In real life, I became really obsessed with the fact that in his diaries, he created code out of Sinhalese letters. And so his diaries were infused with sort of more private material would be written in code for himself 
I'm not really sure who the code was for. And that struck me as incredibly interesting mm. that someone would hide behind their like Sri Lanka had, or Salon as it was then, had a huge effect on Leonard Wolf. It changed the kind of person he was as, and it changed him more than he changed it, <laughs> obviously. And that kind of intensity <laughs> was incorporated into his being in some way and certainly into his actual writing and these kind of codes he made for himself. And so that was my unpicking that I suppose that, that, that's a very kind of a postmodernist or deconstructionist, which was my kind of academic background, approach to kind of language and how had he used language and how had he used the language of another culture. So I, that ends up having been dropped away in the novel. I, and there's not nearly as much of that as there was in the what is the final draft of the book as there was in, in the earlier drafts, which were written as part of my master's. He documented everything. That was one of his characteristics, including Alice notes, I presume this is based on truth, Virginia's menstrual cycle. Was there ever a sense that there was too much material? Because at one stage, Alice is surrounded by boxes and these include bills and lists of music that he and Virginia listened to. Was there a sense of Alice, or you for that matter, ever being completely overwhelmed by too much material? Yes, both of us were. And I probably would say for different reasons. Um, as much as Alice is right, it's, as, as a creative writer, it was difficult. And that's in the novel. On a more personal level, I think that I would say it's when you have to start thinking about, am I writing a novel or am I writing a nonfiction book? Why am I doing all this? I mean, I did so much research. Mm -hmm, It's insane. mm -hmm. (laughs) And why? Because it doesn't necessarily result in better scenes, for example. So do you think, Sophie, that technically, in terms of craft here, and I'm asking you this as someone who's attempting something in the biographical sort of hybrid fiction genre, do you think at some point you keep researching because you haven't yet got sufficient grasp, sufficient purchase on the character to give you the confidence to step away from the research? Possibly. I certainly think that having just said I did too much research, research does give you it gives you poetic moments, it gives you images, it gives you, and from those you can suddenly find yourself leaping in. So you never quite know what parts of the research are going to be crucial, whether the book be fiction or non-fiction, in fact. But in terms of the um, researching to write well or to kind of write creatively, archives are inspirational. So you do find yourself endlessly trawling. It's sort of like gold mining when most of the gold is gold and you're kind of sifting and sifting and and looking for little moments. But I know that with non-fiction, I end up using the same policy, if you like, or the same approach. Once you start, everything you read tells you things you already know or you actually know more or believe you know more, then you really have done enough. And that just took a lot longer with Leonard in Virginia than mm-hmm. it has with other projects. But I was also researching until the very end, partly because I started researching the Spanish flu pandemic, great flu or the great influenza. I read books about the fact that Keynesian economics sort of has had a bit of a comeback. I started researching Keynes and 
who else? Who's incredibly interesting? The of, of the Bloom's reset, the only person where that research should have paid off, which is just because I liked him, was so fascinated by him, as I did a lot of work on Lytton Strachey, and he becomes an active character in the novel. But there are quite a few other people that I researched that did not become active characters. I mean, I read books by and books about Adrian Stevens, Virginia's brother, and Vanessa. Uh, Bell, her sister, and ended up realizing that that was oh, I was overcomplicating it. But something maybe about reading about other friendships, other other people, was very useful because it did give you a sense of Leonard and Virginia. It's, you know, the difference between knowing people in their social milieu versus um, what they are like privately that that was useful because otherwise I think you get very caught up, say in in the case of Virginia, see her as a victim because you think about her being alone inside her head and how complicated it would have been to be inside her head. But she was also a person who loved parties and had fun and was very social and very fighty and, you know. Exactly, yes. And loved having an argument. And Leonard was very doer and serious, but he also, uh, I don't actually know if he liked to have fun. I was about to make some pronouncement about him. But in my, in my imagination, I think he did. He, he was always actually sort of watching out for Virginia and worried that she was, would end up having too much fun and get a bit manic. So I don't know that he, he ever did have fun. <laughs> yes, exactly. He would, have been, he would have been on the side sort of worrying that she was getting overexcited. Um, you've mentioned there the sort of secondary Bloomsbury characters and you do this I think very clever thing in terms of rather than overcomplicating the novel by trying to introduce them as more significant characters you give them attention but in the form of footnotes and these footnotes are often very funny and gossipy asides. Now Alice's agent in the book does not want the footnotes. Um, was that a conversation that you may have had with your publisher or agent or do you have a view about footnotes? I ended up having that conversation with my editor, but after the book had already been written and the scenes had already been written. I mean, the scenes in which there's an argument at footnotes. So the argument at footnotes was a totally imaginary argument because <laughs> I I was just, was, <laughs> forgive my not French, I was just worried I sounded like a total wanker and was kind of, um, was sort of, but so I actually <laughs> several times along the way when I was not convinced that what I was doing was working, I realised that the answer was to go harder. So someone had read a version of the footnotes. In fact, a couple of people had read the version with the footnotes. One of them was Kate Cole Adams, who um, I believe you know and who's is a wonderful writer, and they were like, they were both sort of like they, her and, and my other friend Lorna were sort of, I'm not quite sure, footnotes are kind of great, possibly you need more of them, possibly you need less of them, in that sense, and the same with the, the scenes where the ghosts start appearing. So it's like so I would do it, I'd be tentative, and I don't know that tentative writing is ever the right way to go. So in both those cases, I did actually do a version mm. where, I, well, I tried to lose the ghosts and then I actually realised I couldn't lose the ghosts and I was devoted to the ghosts. So they, just, and that actually also loosened the novel up a lot and allowed me to become more fictional and also allowed me to keep them alive. Like I didn't, I really didn't want them to just be, it used to be a novel about dead people. <laughs> Even though, of course, obviously it is. So the fact that even even in death they continue to be animated, it kind of gave 
gave the novel something that was important to me. But the footnotes, um, I suppose, do speak to the fact that I wasn't quite, I was never quite sure that a fiction was the right way to even tackle the kind of material. And, and because there's demands of narrative, but one of which is that it do, don't, doesn't get too chaotic, even though you could say that my book does get a bit chaotic at times. Mm. But it does mean you lose some stuff that I found it almost impossible to, was a real loss to the novel and indeed to any sense that the book is a proper representation of social history. So to give you an example, Louis Everett, who is the woman who was there on the last day of Virginia's life. She was there on the last day of Leonard's life 40, 40 years later. She mm-hmm. lived with them, I mean, lived down the road in a cottage they owned. She was there every day. She had, they organised meetings together as a group during World War Two, and about, you know, how to find your gas mask and how, what are we going to do to kind of bring the community together. And so because of the class issues, she, she's been written about in books about servants and she wouldn't, there isn't much on the public record about her at all. I found an interview she did for the BBC, but, and she was a part of their family for a very long time. A lot's been written about um, Virginia Woolf's relationship with Nellie, an earlier servant, because she was a bit more flamboyant and they had massive arguments. But the relationship with Louis was more like a family member. And I started to realise that Louis's brother had been at Dunkirk, that one day she had to sort of leave work. She was crying so much that Leonard said, you should get go home and and she was crying because she knew what she'd heard what was happening at Dunkirk at this point people around Virginia and Leonard are kind of getting in their boats and going across trying to get people off the beaches and at some point someone got her brother and she came out to find him asleep curled up on the doormat on a very cold night like about three days or four days after that someone had got him off off the beach she was just so interesting to me, but I thought it was almost another novel. So she's an example of what I thought, I'm at least going to put a footnote in saying this woman is important and interesting and I'm in no position to do her justice. ask you something there that's just occurred to me which is that I read a review which said that Alice as a narrator is both unreliable and omniscient and I thought that that was a really astute comment and I just wondered how you respond to that. I mean, I'm sure she's unreliable. I know, I, I, I know she's omniscient because I made her up and I made her to be omniscient but the unreliable bit is possibly something that's easier for others <laughs> to judge. I don't, because I, I mean, what I was really, because I did finish the book during lockdown, so having spent 15 years and having a huge amount of material and deciding that having done all this research, I had to stop obsessing about the research. I actually really had to let go of the research to finish the book and I had to make myself not go back to it. But it means that I basically did finish, mm. well, not the final draft, but the draft where I pulled a lot of these threads together, like the footnotes, extra ghost scenes, various other things. Um, I did this in three months during lockdown and I can barely remember writing it. I can barely remember how I, so people who are complimenting me say, oh, that's an amazing scene. How did you do it? I've no idea. I mean, I really did enter a kind of fugue state where I just sort of stopped worrying about 
is this too crazy? Is this too weird? Everyone who actually knows a lot about the Bloomsbury said are going to hate this book. People who know a lot about Linda Wolf are going to think it's just are going to hate it. All these kind of anxieties you have when you're writing about real people, let alone just writing a novel full stop. I just, I really, it became a much more private exercise and I stopped thinking about readers and just inhabited the text and I realized that for a lot of novelists possibly this is how they write all their books but it's the first time I've really given over to that sense of just total immersion and stop even trying to function as a normal person for a while but that's where lockdown was useful because there was no point in trying to function as a normal person because there wasn't so you know it it didn't really matter exactly and, I, and so many writers I've spoken to, not just on this podcast, but generally, have said how valuable lockdown was for them in terms of being able to immerse themselves for long periods of time in their project without interruption. I mean, I know it wasn't as straightforward as that for a lot of people, but for a lot of writers, it was actually a godsend. I want to ask you, though, I just want to dwell on this unreliable narrator thing that we're talking about, because surely by virtue of the speculation and the liberties that you take, you know, that makes that makes Alice unreliable. I'm, I'm just interested in how you decide. Well, it makes fiction unreliable. Yes, makes fiction unreliable. <laughs> yes. So, okay, but how do you decide the parameters of speculation and the liberties that you're going to oh, allow yeah. Alice to take? So, for example, That's I think at some question. stage... There is a a comment that's made about the fact that Leonard loathes someone. This is someone called Office Assistant Thomas Southern. And Alice says that Leonard loathed this person. Is that something that Alice knows for a fact because she's read that Leonard loathed this person? Yes, yes. I, I took very few liberties with the material set in the explicitly set in the past. I mean, I took liberties in that I imagined scenes. There is a scene where Leonard is spoon-feeding Virginia and they have an argument about the fact that he has decided that they can't have children. Mm -hmm. Now, I know, though, that it was extremely distressing to her that they'd had a version of that argument. I knew that he some days was having to spoon-feed her, force-feed her, depending on how you want to characterise it, for hours a day. Mm. She was refusing to eat. So I sort of, of course, I don't know exactly what they said, but I, you do get, actually get sense from letters and diaries of some of what they said. And there's been quite a lot of analysis about that in other books too, about whether Leonard was kind of criminally cruel at that time, for example. And I also had my own uh, response to that which was that it would be very hard to imagine having a child with someone who had been in bed for two years and was possibly going to, had been suicidal, mm. also didn't want to have sexual relations with you. Mm. So that it would have been quite traumatic. There's no IVF back then. So having a child would have been a very traumatic act in itself. So I didn't necessarily think he was being as cruel as some commentators would. So I, you have a, a mix-up of your own opinion. But the actual fact of the matter is I didn't make up the argument. And so that's one of the reasons I introduced the ghosts and even the footnotes was to allow myself to to play or kind of mess up the idea of did this really happen or did it not? Mm -hmm. Because I I couldn't bring myself to really make up stuff 
in the historical, the, the straight historical scenes. And then the irony is that something that I might read as being too fanciful to be true turns out to be true. So my favorite example of that is when they're deciding, Leonard and Virginia, what they're going to go to as um, fancy dress costumes for a party right at the beginning of the book. Would you like to just That's right. <laughs> tell us about that? Yes. Well, I mean, that's an example of why you just keep reading and reading an archive and sort of read, go through archives, read everything you can, because that scene just presented itself to me as a real fact. I, I, can't, I can't remember. I would have footnotes somewhere as to where that came from. So it had Louis, it shows you how important Louis was, to get back to Louis, because she was the one who was sort of, Helping make the costumes, even though it's like that's one word or half, you know, whatever, half a sentence. But also, I was battling with this: is it fiction? Is it non-fiction? How do I handle these things? But no, I didn't make up. I didn't make up anything. I mean, I made up words that they might have said to each other. But just to just to dwell on the fancy dress for a moment, so it is actually true that they went to a party yes. and one of them was dressed as a non-fiction bookshelf, and the other one and that was, was fiction. Yes. That's right, and that was that was Virginia. <laughs> Obviously, there was lots of talk about did Leonard have sex with other people? Did what? What does it mean not to have had consensual sexual relationships with your wife? I, we're not. I'm not even going to get into the technical, all the various things that I read and heard. <laughs> but I did actually hear gossip. So when I was in Sussex, people would say, "I heard Leonard did this. I heard Leonard did that." Leonard was a friend, we heard things, whatever. And I thought, I'm not going to include absolute gossip, <coughs> but I think it's Victoria Glendinning who talks about the fact that some people thought he'd had an affair with one of his cooks, mm -hmm. um, a woman called Lily. Early on, I was very interested by the fact that Leonard seemed, as far as I could at first establish, to have only had sexual relations, penetrative sex. Sorry to be technical, but this is what we with um, women of colour in Salon, possibly with, with with prostitutes in in England. I'm not sure um, with white women, but I actually think one of the things he liked about Virginia was that she was so pure, and the fact that she couldn't. And we're not even going to get into her particular issues, but they and Victoria Glendening writes very beautifully about this, and I think Hermione Lee might as well. They did cuddle and they kissed and they touched each other and they wrote very saucy, had very saucy correspondence. So they did <laughs> they did crawl into each other's bed and cuddle fairly assertively. So it's not that they had no... Assertive cuddling, no, that's know. a great term. <laughs> I, I don't think it's true to say they had no erotic life, particularly earlier on in their relationship. They had, But they didn't have conventional sex but nor and possibly he never had that with his second long-term partner Tricky Parsons as well and I think Victoria Glendening suggests well that suggests that might be because it had prostate cancer or he just lost his confidence or he was in his 60s by that stage and he, and mm. she also had was married to someone else and was a bit ambivalent of course, about of course. Of course. <laughs> so he basically finished his life in a threesome. Anyway, that's but, but um but then you did I would also hear gossip that possibly after Virginia died he would occasionally have little 
flings with people. And I just have no idea about the truth of that. But he did, the experience of lust, you don't have to have sex to experience lust. Ask any priest who's managed to stick to their vows. So he would feel very overwhelmed by the intensity of that feeling and would feel ashamed. And he does talk about the disservice, the Victorian era and boys boarding schools, the disservice they did to people, those, that kind of upbringing did because mm. there was so much shame and distress around sexual, around being sexual. And he would be quite overwhelmed and feel quite ill with, 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 with desire. And I'm assuming that he continued to feel ill with desire during his marriage, mm. either in relation to Virginia or possibly crushes on other people. He was always very clear that he did not have an affair. He said Virginia would, it would have been distressed her too much. I was not going to have an affair. And I sort of believe him on that. But there is some, I think, again, this is Victoria Glendinning. When he was, at some point, there was a group of, was it just Bloomsbury men or political friends? They were saying, so if you're going to die, what do you wish you were doing when you were dying? And, you know, someone would have said drinking and someone said fishing and someone would have said, I don't want to die. But Leonard Wolf said, I would like to die fucking. I really had to wait till I felt like I knew Leonard and I knew Virginia. And indeed, I felt like I knew Lytton, but I never felt like I knew Vanessa Bell. No one ever felt that they knew Vanessa Bell, from what I can gather. No, but in a sense, what you're saying leads me to understand that whether you give them dialogue as ghosts or not, you do have to let the characters haunt you. They have to be having a conversation with you inside your head, whether you actually choose to manifest that on the page or not. Um, But I'm interested, Sophie, that there's a sort of a moment of epiphany, I think, for Alice relatively early on in the book. You say, suddenly Alice understood she had to let her facts get out of control. What does that mean? That was after reading something that I can't even remember now if Leonard or Virginia wrote it. Virginia, uh, I read in the archives in, Bloom, in Bloomington, I read some, a kind of crazy letter she wrote to a friend when she was quite young, which is kind of moving all over the place. And then Alice, as the writer, starts to try and make these mad leaps between all the different stuff she's reading at the same time. And Leonard made some reference to the fact that sometimes Virginia would lose control and he had a phrase for it, which is eluding me now, uh, about taking flight, mm-hmm. I think was the phrase. And I do think it's that you do actually have to stop worrying about what the facts are. And if you actually know what you're doing or feel that you know what you're doing, the facts just are there informing what you do anyway. Okay, now I want to shift back to Leonard for a moment because we've been talking quite a lot about Alice. I have to say that I found that at times Leonard was quite a pedant and an over-explainer and I was wondering whether you ever became bored with him and whether you think, and this is a very harsh way of putting it, would he be interesting in his own right without being Virginia Woolf's husband? Yes, he would be. 
But however, that does not mean that I did not sometimes find him pedantic and boring. I did. <laughs> and, it was, and it was a problem for the novel. And it was one of the reasons why I realised I had to let Virginia in and indeed let Lytton in because otherwise those qualities would have overwhelmed the novel in some ways. There needed to be lighter voices. Mm-hmm. And they did be the voices of people who didn't obsessively track every record that was listened to and the menstrual cycles of their life and all those kind of things. But the, the, I'll tell you, the point when I think I realised just how interesting Leonard Wolfe was, or their two points, and they both relate to the war, wars, actually. So one was when I read in his diaries that the shots rang out in Sarajevo. He knew that the world, I can't remember the exact word, the world as he knew it was going to fall, which is exactly what happened because it was World War I and the end of empire, mm. you know, and, and those things. And he seemed to me very prescient. And then I kind of forgot how prescient he was. And But then when I started, was living in the States, the United States in during the build-up to the Trump election, I was there not when he got elected but in the year building up to it. I was reading his writings about the build-up to World War II and they were, again, extremely prescient. And Well, they felt very relevant to what was happening today, but also he was saying things about fascism and Hitler that other English people were not saying because they didn't, because of the anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Long, long story short, it's like, sure, it's not great that Hitler's doing that, but we don't want to upend all our treaties and all our, you know, all the ways in which Europe works just because that is happening to the Jews. Was the gent was kind of a not a fairly widely held position, and Leonard was seen as troublesome and difficult. He he also was fairly um, made observations about the formation of Palestine that had really unfolded and, you know, that, and he actually reminded me of John Keynes in this, I mean, John Keynes at the, and, um, when this part of the Treaty of Versailles was there mm-hmm. and when basically the, the, the conditions were so punitive towards the Germans, he was basically saying there's going to be another war within 20 years. In fact, Leonard had said part maybe because of his relationship with Keynes had had was basically had almost had given dates about when he thought there'd be another war by. So I found all that his political brain, his capacity to see into the future was incredibly interesting to me. And the way he could he lobbied for national parks in the South Downs. The South Downs didn't become a national park until after I walked them. Um, that came a, a national park in 2010. Um, he talked about a lot of environmental issues, about pesticide use mm-hmm. before these things were in, in widespread use. And there is actually a scene. <laughs> I'm very pleased the scene's in there, but I did keep expecting that someone would ever remove it and tell me they just couldn't handle it. But where, and I talk about his view of Silent Spring and, and pesticide use. And he has an argument with Alice because she is listening to the radio and this did really happen to me where there's the mouse plague and they're talking about using bromulite. And I'm like, oh my, like it's no one, these conversations have been going on for decades. Exactly the same conversation, not new versions of the same conversation, but exactly the same conversation. So I, for all these reasons, I did, I, my, my, um, engagement with him was genuine, mm. I suppose, is what I'm yes. saying. I did find him very interesting. I do think he – I'm also quite used to, and this might be generational as well, um, pompous men who talk at you. 
and you know I um, have relatives and I have worked with people where they have those qualities <laughs> and you my approach and this is genuine is what can I learn here this is interesting yes it's a bit much yes I know some of this but also how lucky am I to be speaking to insert name of famous author here right and hearing them pontificate but their pontification is amazing and interesting. So I didn't. it doesn't necessarily rub me up the wrong way. Okay. I just quite enjoy it. Okay. I mean, I went to university to be lectured too. And so to actually be lucky enough in my personal life to sometimes know people that did that struck me as interesting rather than a problem. But I'm just wondering, I think he's quite ineffectual as a colonial public servant. He doesn't achieve very much. Do you think that Leonard considered himself That's a failure? Not true. Oh, okay, all right. Sorry, true. okay, let's let's debate that. I mean, how was he effective as a colonial public servant? He was very effective. I think the what is problematic about Leonard is that he was so effective despite claiming in later years to be anti an anti imperialist or you know, think that the colonial structures were problematic because, in fact, he was very successful if you um, – he wasn't successful at managing up, as the phrase would now be. Yes. Um, so he would piss off his um, his elders and betters or – Superiors. Superiors. Superiors by um, saying this is not good enough and what's the point of taxing people to build roads and then not allowing them to use the road – when when they don't even need the roads, or you know they live in their villages, what what are the who are the roads for? The roads are for the English that were taxing them, not the English. So he would send those kind of letters. But that said, he would still he was a police magistrate. He the range of tasks he did was huge. He got plenty of taxes out of people. Where he was ineffective was the way in which the entire colonial structure was ineffective. So I do have a scene where he's trying to get people to um, show them how to use a, a bullock attached to a kind of some kind of harness so it can Exactly. Sew. I was thinking of that yeah. scene. Yes. And they think he's a bit of a joke. Mm-hmm. But I think they thought all the colonial administrators who did that stuff were a bit of a joke. Well, then let me ask you this. Do you think that Leonard considered himself a failure either as a colonial public servant or in a wider sense in his life? Yes, as a wider sense, yes, I do think he, like, so he talked about, you know, he made these prescient comments about World War One and World War Two, but pesticides, none of it made any difference. Would be one percent like so in the way that I mean people feel about climate change today, like scientists who are saying it's going to get bad, it's going to get bad, it's bad now. Everyone, it's really bad. We're really in trouble. You just say it, you say it, mm-hmm. you say it. It makes no, it's making no difference. Now that the book is on its journey into the world and in other people's hands and in other people's heads and in my case, hearts, I really love this book. Are they continuing to haunt you or have they receded or have they said, right, that's it, we're off now? They're still friends, <laughs> like imaginary friends. When I was a kid, <laughs> I used to have, an ima- a lot of kids, an imaginary friend who would, if something had been eaten, like a muffin or something, not that they existed back when I was growing up, but I'd say Mr. Nobody did it. Mr. Nobody was my friend. When I started to realise that Leonard had become a form of Mr. Nobody for me. I adored this novel. 
partly because Alice has all the plausible neuroses and anxieties a biographer might have, but also because the tone is often very droll. I'm not sure if Leonard Wolfe had a sense of humour. I found him a bit of a mansplainer at times. But Alice, and by extension Sophie, are clearly very fond of him. I can't wait to see what British readers make of an Australian writer tackling some of the most mythologised figures in their literary history. I think Sophie Cunningham pulls off a tricky challenge with flair. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipewolf Media. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. This episode of Life Sentences was produced with a grant from Create New South Wales and I would like to acknowledge their generous support.